Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Jason Fagoni. Fagoni is a narrative writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. He focuses on in-depth stories and investigations. His most recent piece is headlined The Jessica Simulation. It's about a man who used a website that created chatbots to bring his dead girlfriend or memories of her back to life. Joshua was able to uh, use this website, Project December, to create a, a custom uh, chatbot simulation of his dead girlfriend, Jessica. And he began to talk, uh, have these very long, intense emotional conversations with this simulation of Jessica, and, and then things got very weird. Fagoni joined the Chronicle in the fall of 2017 after a solid career of freelancing and book writing. It's not anything I ever expected to happen to me career-wise. I, in, in some ways, I've kind of like, I've kind of done my career in reverse order. I think a lot of people start out at, at newspapers and, and they're doing uh, beat reporting and they decide they want to write longer things and have some more freedom. And so they, they, they leave and they go do magazine articles and books. I did the, the books and the magazine articles first and now I work at a, at a newspaper. Fagoni has been on the podcast before. He was the guest on episode nine all the way back in September of 2013. At the time, we talked about a couple of his stories in Philadelphia Magazine. Since that episode, he has written two more books, giving him three in all. That includes The Woman Who Smashed Codes, which was released in 2017. Fagoni has written for Esquire, Wired, GQ, Huffington Post, and Mother Jones, among many other publications. As usual, I've linked to a lot of his work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Jason, welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. Matt, it's great to see you again. It's been a, it's been a while. It has been a very long time since we last talked on the show. Um, you were on in September of 2013. 
So Gosh. almost eight years, I think at the time you were at least a hundred years, if, at least a hundred years. That's what it feels re- like. Recent America time. Right. Right. And I think at the time you were freelancing, um, you know, for like uh, Philadelphia magazine and, and I think had some pieces of wired and that type of stuff that we talked about at the time. Um, since then you've, you've continued to do some amazing work, including your book, the woman who smashed codes, which I would love to talk about a little bit yeah. later in the show. Um, but the first thing I would really, really like to talk about with you is your latest piece in the San Francisco Chronicle, and and that is the Jessica simulation. Uh, I think it ran last week, uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe. Um, can you tell me about about that story? Yeah. So that's one of the big changes in my life. I work at the San Francisco Chronicle right now. I'm the narrative writer there. Um, yeah, and I, it's, it's my full-time employment. I was the last time I talked to you, I was freelancing, writing books, magazine articles, but now I'm a full-time, uh, newspaper writer. Uh, but at the Chronicle, I specialize in, uh, long form sort of magazine style pieces. And the Jessica simulation is one of those projects, something that, uh, that I worked on for nine months, uh, with my editor at the Chronicle, Lisa Gartner, who's uh, really brilliant, just joined the team, uh, late last year. And, um, so, so this was a story about a young couple in Ottawa, Canada, um, and they met about uh, 10 years ago when they were in their 20s, and they fell in love. They were, they were both nerdy, uh, loved comic books, fantasy, science fiction, and they just kind of clicked and fell for each other. Uh, and they were together for two years until Jessica's liver began to fail. She had a, a rare autoimmune condition where her her uh, immune system attacked her own liver. She'd actually had a, a transplant when she was a kid, but um, her transplant liver was nearing the end of its life and she needed a new one, but she wasn't able to, um, to get one in time before her organs began to fail. And um, she, she died in the hospital at age 23 um, with Joshua holding her hand. And he was devastated by this loss. He had a really hard time getting over it. He had hoped to um, get married if, uh, if she had gotten a new liver and, and she had survived. And over the next eight years, um, uh, from 2012 to last September, he, he struggled a lot. You know, grief, sometimes it would be uh, very intense. Sometimes it would sort of go away. I think, I think this is how, how, how grief is, right? I think it kind of like comes and goes in waves. And last September, it, it was particularly um, bad and spiking because that was the month um, of her birthday. So, uh, so Joshua, uh, this guy, um, his name is Joshua Barbeau. He, he was living alone at the time in a basement apartment in Canada. Um, he was really missing Jessica, his, um, his ex-girlfriend a lot. And it just so happened that um, around that time he had, he had discovered this mysterious website called project December. Um, and that's when some really, um, unusual and kind of amazing things started to happen, uh, because this website project December, um, was a chatbot service that was based around this very sophisticated artificial intelligence engine. So essentially you could, you could, if you're using the site, you can type back and forth with, um, uh, an artificial sort of computer persona, just like you were, you know, slacking with a colleague or texting with a friend on your phone, um, or like AOL instant messenger back in the day. Um, and, uh, you know, chatbots have been around for a long time since the sixties, but the, 
artificial intelligence engines that, that power them have gotten so good uh, so quickly just in the last couple of years. Uh, there have been these huge advances um, in these things called large language models, which, which are forms of um, applications in machine learning that essentially generate um, smooth English text uh, in response to a prompt. And these, these, these engines have gotten so good at generating English that seems like it was written by human um, that Joshua was able to uh, use this website, Project December, to create a, a custom uh, chatbot simulation of his dead girlfriend, Jessica. And he began to talk, uh, have these very long, intense, emotional conversations with this simulation of Jessica. And, and then things got very weird. <laughs> Um, and that's what the story is about is sort of what it meant to him and how it changed him. Right. Right. It, I, you know, it really reminds me of, um, an episode of, of black mirror, um, in yeah. which, uh, it, it's the same thing. The episode's called be right back. And it starts with the type of technology that shows up in the story that you're writing about. And it's a woman whose husband dies and she uploads, um, uh, emails that he s had sent. Right. And then it generates right. someone that she chats back and forth with. And it goes on a slippery slope um, from there, um, uh, which is, I, you know, uh, it's 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 really, really interesting, but also really, really frightening. Um, how did you hear about Joshua in the first place? Yeah. So um, so back in the day. Uh, closer to the first time that we that we spoke, um, uh, but actually a little bit before then, I I had um, written a profile for Esquire magazine about this video game designer named Jason Rohrer, and um, I was I was fascinated with Jason at the time. He he was this very kind of provocative, eccentric um, programmer and and game designer who was really pushing the envelope of what video games can do in terms of creating sort of emotional, immersive. Um, experiences, he believed that video games could uh, sort of achieve the, the emotional intensity and uh, depth of, um, you know, art like films um, or, or paintings. And he was developing these games that were like no other games, games that, you know, were kind of like pixelated. They had crappy graphics, but you play them for 10 minutes and you find yourself like weeping. Um, so I, I read this profile about Jason uh, in 2008, I think, in Esquire. And um, after that, he just kind of, I don't, I don't know if Matt, Matt, you've ever had a source who just kind of like um, keeps in touch with you and keeps writing you after you, after you write about them. But Jason, Jason and this, this is great. This is a wonderful thing. I love when this happens. It doesn't always happen, but it happened with Jason. And he just stayed in touch with me uh, over the years and would send me these emails from time to time about his other projects. Some of them were absolutely insane. Like there was this one time I remember he, he emailed me and he, he's like, okay, I'm going to the, um, to the uh, desert in the Southwest. I'm going to bury a board game that I made out of titanium. It's printed on this titanium plate. I only made one version of this game. I'm going to bury it in a spot in the desert. I'm going to record the GPS coordinate. And then I'm going to sort of encrypt the directions to discover the game um, in, in, in some way. I, I don't remember exactly what the, <laughs> the point was like, he wanted me to go to the Nevada desert with him and bury this board game that he made out of titanium for, for some kind of, to make some kind of uh, point. And um, almost always when, when, you know, a source proposes an insane adventure like that, you should say yes. Right. And, um, and I don't <laughs> like, that's kind of the rule. If, if this is what you do for a living, you should say yes. I said no, because there was some, something going on family wise at, at the time. So, so I said, okay, like the next time you, the next time you make a board game out of titanium and bury it in the desert, I'll go with you. But, um, 
but I didn't go with him that time. But 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 he kept on sort of coming up with these uh, amazing ideas. He's kind of a genius. And um, and in late 2019, he started emailing me about his experiments with uh, GPT-2 and GPT-3, which are these um, you know very advanced large language models. Essentially, these 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 engines that generate English that that are created by um, this company co-founded by Elon Musk called OpenAI. So Jason was was playing around with GPT-2, GPT-3, and he was sending me the output of his experiments. And he was doing these literary experiments at first. He was he was generating sort of um, you know thousands of words at a time um, uh, uh, in the style of Thomas Pynchon, one of his fam- favorite novelists, and sending me the excerpts. And so, some of the some of the you know phrases that these AIs came up with were incredibly inventive, but you know, at, at length of thousand words or, or more, um, or even much less oftentimes these, these, um, language models don't have any coherence. They start to repeat themselves. They get stuck in ruts. Um, the, the text that they put out is just very boring. And so Jason sort of pivoted and he thought, well, what if, what if I sort of channel and harness this firehose of language through, you know, this very simple kind of chatbot interface so that, you know, um, you're not looking at you know paragraphs of of text or pages of text. You're just looking at a couple of lines, and the human is kind of keeping the AI on track um, as you go along. And he found that that worked much better. And if if once he created this chatbot interface for these language models, then um, all of a sudden you can have like a very deep and surprising and 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 smooth and um, sort of mysteriously uh, emotionally intense conversation with. Uh, with a computer persona and something just something clicked about it and and um and uh and so he sent he set up an account for me on the site project december and i started playing around with it and uh and then one day he sent me an email and said um you got to read this reddit post there's one of my users who did something that i never expected so so jason you know he created this feature on project december where you could um you could make a, a custom chat bot. There's some built-in bots that you can play with. You know, there's one that simulates Shakespeare actually terribly. It's a terrible Shakespeare imitation. <laughs> it's like just not, not at all uh, approaching the level of uh, verbosity of Shakespeare. Um, very disappointing. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a, fem- a friendly female uh, chat bot that you, can, um, that you can engage with named Samantha, um, modeled after the AI assistant in the movie Her. Uh, there's one that simulates God, there's one that simulates Lucifer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can make your own based on a little bit of seed text. You were talking about Black Mirror. The premise of the Black Mirror episode is that the the grieving widow basically takes her dead husband's entire social media history and provides it to this company that promises to create a replica of him based on his own words. Uh, and this is kind of, you know, in a much more, <laughs> there's, there are no sort of like humanoid, humanoid robot versions of, uh, of anyone walking around here. We're just at talking least, about at least not screen, yet, right? at least not, not yet. yet, not yet. Right? <laughs> but, um, but this is essentially the, the same idea uh, that Joshua was exploring is he, he used, a, he took a little bit of seed text from Jessica, uh, from Jessica's actual real life text messages and Facebook messages that he had kept for eight years. He put that into the site and used that to sort of spin up this, this simulation of her. And Jason Rohr, who created the site, when he sent me this email and said, you got to look at this Reddit post, he said, you know, I never expected anybody to use Project December this way. I expected that, you know, when people made custom chatbots, they would want to you know, talk to celebrities, or they would want to talk to, you know, simulations of not their favorite novelists. I never expected that you could use it to talk to 
grandpa, you know, who's, who's been dead for years. And, um, and so I looked at this, I looked at this post on Reddit and it was an anonymous post of a guy um, named Joshua who was typing with a chatbot named Jessica. And it was just a little snippet of their opening conversation. Um, it was like, you know, uh, two or 3% of, of the entire conversation I would run later, but that just that, just that opening passage of their conversation was so, um, was so remarkably kind of, um, uh, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like, uh, just, just compelling, um, uh, kind of heartbreaking, um, uh, uh, surprising. And a lot of people who read it had, had the same reaction, but I thought, well, I wonder if, if this isn't some kind of a hoax, if this isn't, you know, a guy who's inventing this uh, conversation that never happened, if, if, if these people actually exist, if Joshua is real, if Jessica is real, if she really did die, um, if all of this is true, then this could be a really interesting story. And so I reached out to him through Reddit um, and uh, we ended up talking and having, you know, uh, hours and hours of conversations over the next several months. And then he shared, you know, much, much longer and more extensive versions of his, his conversations with uh, this Jessica simulation with me. And that was the that was the basis for this story. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how did you reach out to him the first time? And, and what was that like? Because in, in some ways, uh, he seems like someone who might not want to be front and center like this, but but I could be entirely wrong. Yeah, so he was reluctant at first uh, for a couple of reasons. I think one is that he he didn't want to be perceived as someone who who was exploiting um, Jessica's memory in any way, right? Um, he the conversations were 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 very intensely personal and emotional. I think he was a little bit worried about um, his privacy and also worried about Jessica's privacy, right? Because she, Jessica's, this is one of the kind of moral or ethical questions that's raised by this technology, simulating conversations with the dead. They're not around to give their consent. Right. Um, and this is one of the reactions that, that people online have had to the story. A, a pretty common reaction that I've seen is this is really freaky. And please, when I die, nobody make a chatbot version of me, right? Like if you, res if you bring me back as a chatbot, I will come back and haunt you. That's not something I would ever want. Um, and I understand that reaction. That's a, that's a totally, totally, totally legit reaction, right? So I think he was worried about some of these things. He was a little bit worried what her family would think um, if he if he talked about, you know, his conversations in depth. Because again, he when he posted on Reddit, it was just a small piece of the conversations he'd been having with this simulation, and he had anonymized it. Um, so I, what I was proposing was I like I want to do a legitimate story. I want this to be all all accurate, all all fact checked. I I want to you know, I want to use your name or her name. I want to talk to, you know, people, her family, people that she knew, like this all, I want this all be, I, you know, I want to write a real story about this. Um, so I think I ended up, um, I ended up convincing him that I was serious, um, that, uh, and I think that he ended up uh, believing that there was some potentially, you know, good, good, uh, good result that could come from the story if it made other grieving people aware that there was potentially this new tool uh, that could help them kind of work through their grief, um, uh, confront their emotions, find some sense of, of peace or closure over the death of a loved one. And I also think that Joshua um, ultimately just felt like he was, by talking about Jessica and by sharing these pieces of these simulated conversations or real conversations he had with a simulated version of her, that he was, um, you know, uh, propagating her memory and preserving her memory. He was, he was sharing um, uh, what 
was special about Jessica, what was amazing about her uh, with the world by talking about, you know, not just his relationship with her in real life, but by, by sharing these conversations that he was having with a simulated version of her that was in some way based on, on her authentic real life voice, because he had used some of her real text messages to, to spin up the bot in the first place. So I think in the end, um, he, he, he believed that he was, he was doing the right thing um, by, by talking about this. Um, and, uh, and I'm really glad that he did, because I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that the story has, has, you know, it's, it's touched a nerve with a lot of people. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, like me, I mean, I had no idea that the technology had gotten to this point before I started looking into the story. And I think a lot of people who are reading these transcripts, um, are having the same reaction. And so if, there's, there's some kind of conversation that's happening around this technology now that wasn't happening before. And I feel, I feel really good about that. Yeah. One thing that I, I really loved about the story is the fact that in, in many ways, Jessica, or at least the memory of Jessica is brought to life for a lot of people who never even knew or had who she was. Right. And so in a lot of right. ways, because we do learn about her and everything that she had went through. Um, obviously, you talked with her family. What were they like? Were they were they interested in, in, in telling her story? Yeah, they're, well, they're wonderful people. Um, they they didn't quite know what to make of all of this AI uh, stuff, and they had, I think, very mixed feelings about Joshua's decision to you know simulate Jessica on this chatbot site. So, you know, uh, Jessica's mother, Karen said she was curious about it, but she, she never read the, the Reddit post or that little piece of transcript that Joshua had uploaded of his first conversation, even though she could have, she, she avoided it. And I asked her why. And she said, well, I, you know, I just know that it's not her, you know, at the end of the day, I know, I know that this isn't real. I know this, this isn't her. So, so for Karen, for Jessica's mother to even to, even to read a transcript of this false version of Jessica, you know, uh, it, it had no interest for her and, and maybe, maybe would it interfere with her, her memory of the real Jessica in some way that would be unpleasant. I, I don't know. Um, uh, I talked to Jessica's sisters and um, youngest sister, Michaela, said she was really glad if the conversations brought Jess, uh, Joshua any comfort or peace because she, she's very fond of him. I mean, the family really liked Joshua. They, they think he's a great guy. They, they, they saw the, the two of them together, saw that they were happy. They laughed all the time. You know, it was, it, by, by all accounts, it was, you know, a good and healthy uh, relationship. There was a lot of mutual respect there. Um, but, um, I don't think Michaela was that interested in, you know, having a conversation with a simulated version of Jessica either. And, um, Jessica's other sister, Amanda was, was pretty against it. Um, so Amanda did read the, the, the Reddit, um, post and that little piece of transcript when, when Josh, uh, uploaded it and Amanda was, was kind of, uh, taken aback by it. And she told me that she thought, you know, this was not a healthy way of dealing with grief, right? That this was actually a form of escape into fantasy. And she worried that if people were able to have conversations like this, um, you know, mediated by this, you know, AI tech, 
then there's a danger that they would get lost in it uh, and they might suffer additional trauma uh, even. You know, she pointed out that, uh, you know, people who are dealing with grief are very fragile and vulnerable. And, uh, you know, what if, what if they develop a connection with uh, an AI simulation of their loved one and then they lose access to that simulation in, in some way? You know, do, do they have to go through the, uh, 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 the grieving process all over again? Uh, this time with with you know an artificial um, personality. So, I mean, and I, I don't know the I don't know the answer to the, any of these questions. By the way, it's not you know I I um I still don't know what to make of it or or, or really what to think of it myself. It's like pretty much all through the reporting process, I felt like I was I was the question the questions raised by this technology are so huge you know, questions of personhood, questions of privacy, questions of legacy, um, uh, questions about intelligence, consciousness, the soul, um, questions about sort of uh, uh, anticipating dangers of technology that are not yet realized, but but very, very could, you know, could well be realized in the future. Um, all, it's, I, I feel like I kept on like, everywhere I looked, there were these giant cartoon brick walls of, <laughs> you know, sort of these huge uh, philosophical questions I kept on smacking into. And, um, and so I decided not to, ultimately, I decided not to do the sort of usual magazine writer, like riffing about this stuff. Um, I thought it was, I thought the best approach was just to, to show um, the story and to show what happened as, as best I could to try to immerse readers in the experience and Joshua's experience of, of developing this relationship with this Jessica simulation and to just show it, to just do my job as a reporter and a writer and just tell the story as sort of as directly as, as I could um, with all the material that I, that I had um, and then let people, you know, think about it, what they, what they will, which, which they have, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, very strong opinions on, on both sides when you look at the reactions to the piece. The story itself um, is in three chapters, and it starts with Joshua at that, that bottom of the barrel uh, in his grieving uh, for Jessica. Can you talk about how the the rest of the story is structured, and how how did you end up on this this structure for the story? Yeah, so that was uh, that was my editor Lisa's uh, idea. The structure, hundred uh, percent her idea. I I did not uh, I did not think of it myself uh before she came up with the idea for the structure i was kind of you know kind of kind of swimming in uh, you know a way way over long draft <laughs> uh, as we often do in the early stages of large projects like this and and lisa really sort of imposed uh this very uh simple but i think effective uh structure of the story um where uh you know it's 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 like you said it's divided into three parts you know the first part roughly is sort of his creation of this of this you know simulated personality the simulated version of jessica his, his ex-girlfriend um the second part is you know about the life that uh, joshua and jessica had together um you know when they were a couple uh between 2010 and 2012 and also the, the relationship that they developed as Joshua began to sort of take this, you know, his connection with uh, uh, this AI um, system more seriously and got much deeper into, into these uh, exchanges with the Jessica simulation than he ever expected. Um, and then the third part of the story is about um, Jessica's 
uh, death and her uh, her probable sort of death on the site. Um, you know, her her decline, her health decline in in real life, and then um, and then Joshua having to face this um, this dilemma, uh, uh, which is that the bots on Project December are are mortal essentially. They're you know the Jason who created the site imposed this this um, artificial uh, limitation on the amount of time that people can chat with custom bots that they create. And, you know, he did it for a practical reason. It just is for the same reason that you know, um, you know, in an arcade, you only get a certain number of of lives for the the quarter that you put into the box. You know, it's because it costs money to run the arcade, electricity and rent and everything, um, and it costs Jason money every month to pay for the you know uh, cloud compute cycles that that are required by these large language models which are really really um uh you know firepower hungry they need a lot of um, computing power to to run um and he pays for that through cloud computing services and it costs money so he didn't want to lose money running uh running the site so he he made made sure that all of the bots would would essentially have like a battery that would count down from 100 depending on how many sort of credits you put into the bot in the beginning. Um, and he also he also injected this sort of other human quality into the bots when he created the site, which is that he 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 made them all unique. Um, you know, it, it seems like uh, naively, uh, since it's just a computer persona, it seems like you ought to be able to spin spin up any custom chatbot again and again and again. You know, it dies. You just make another one. You put in the same seed text as before. You know, you start to have a very similar kind of conversation. But that's not actually how Project December works because there's this random randomness parameter um, that that is part of uh, GPT three. And Jason decided that he wanted a little bit of randomness. He wanted a little bit of chaos in sight. He wanted a little bit of unpredictability, and so. Um, it, it basically means that every instance of every chatbot is unique. And um, from Joshua's point of view, you know, not only was this Jessica simulation mortal and going to, you know, die at some point on the site, and he wouldn't be able to talk to her anymore, but um, he also wouldn't be able to recreate her, or just respawn her like in a video game, because, um, you know, the next version of Jessica might be, um, might be substantially different. Uh, you know, the, the version of Jessica that he was having this magical experience with was, you know, friendly, warm, loving, sweet, um, you know, praising him, a uh, kind of an idealized uh, version of Jessica. But the next version of Jessica could get mad at him or could scold him or could say things that are really upsetting for a grieving person to hear. Um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't want that anyway. So, so Joshua ultimately decided that he wasn't even going to try to create another Jessica chatbot after, after this one died. Um, he was just going to try to preserve and conserve her remaining life, um, so that uh, he didn't he didn't spend it all down to the point where she would appear to die on the screen. Yeah. Uh, did you make did you to 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 land on this this structure? Uh, how much revision work did you have to do? Oh gosh, a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's something like there's something like four um, pretty distinct um, versions of the story, drafts of the story, in the sense that there are different documents, like V1, V2, V3, V4. 
but as you know, within each within each uh, document, there are all kinds of um, all kinds of revisions that you make. So it's it's hard to I never I never quite know how to count the number of the number of versions, right? Because it's it's all kind of uh, it's all a uh, um, it's all sort of in progress all the time. But yeah, I mean, I would say that there are several pretty substantially um, different you know, versions of the story, but um, as we went along, it, it got sort of carved and, and honed this kind of like uh, a three act structure. Is this one of the, the bigger pieces that you've done uh, now that you're at the San Francisco Chronicle, or at least maybe one of the ones that have generated the most kind of, I guess, buzz? Yeah, I would, I would say uh, of, the, of the long narrative pieces I've done at the Chronicle, this is the one that has connected with the most people resonated the most, you know, sparked the the most sort of intense and interesting discussions. Um, it's definitely the weirdest uh, story that I've written for the Chronicle, uh, which I'm very proud of. Actually, like I, I, one of one of my one of my goals uh, there for for these kinds of projects, not investigative projects. Yeah, I also do the narrative. The narrative team is also the investigative team, so. We also do like like pretty straightforward accountability reporting, and I've done a lot of like very very straightforward investigative stories um, that are totally like in the cl- in the classic mode of investigative reporting. But for these narrative projects, I, I I like to find I like to find sort of unexpected and surprising and weird stuff, you know. Um, and the, the weirder the better, and. Um, there's there's also a cool kind of dynamic that if if you publish something a little weird in a in a really mainstream newspaper people are surprised by it and uh, i think mostly pleasantly surprised and um and this is by far the weirdest thing that i've that i've managed to get to get in in print uh, at the chronicle and um you know with with the with the with the um you know full support of of lisa who's she's very much uh, i think on my side in this in this quest of mine to publish uh weird, surprising stuff. And so I'm really glad about that. I've been talking with Jason Fagoni. Fagoni is a narrative writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. His story, The Jessica Simulation, was published on July 23rd. We'll be back with more from Jason in just one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital Journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I've been talking with Jason Fagoni, a narrative writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. He's also the author of three books, including The Woman Who Smashed Codes. That book was published in 2017. How long have you been at the Chronicle now? 
since uh, late 2017. Yeah, it's been great. I, 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 it's, it's, it's not anything I ever expected to happen to me career-wise. In, in some ways, I've kind of like I've kind of done my career in reverse order. Like I start, I think a lot of people start. You know what I mean, Matt? Um, it's like. It's like, I think a lot of people start out at, at newspapers and, and they're doing uh, beat reporting and they decide they want to write longer things and have some more freedom. And so they, they, they leave and they go do magazine articles and books. I, I did, I did the, the books and the magazine articles first, and now I work at a, at a newspaper. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly how, how that happened, uh, but I'm glad that it happened because I think, um, well, one, I, I, really, um, I really like the paper, I, I like the people. I think the, there's an incredible amount of, of talent there. Um, you know, the, the work is, um, I think, strong and, um, and like consistently uh, important. And, um, and, uh, and I've learned a lot, you know, I've, I've, it, it was an immersion in a, in a different culture at, at first. And there were a lot of things that I found initially confusing, like, newspaper people think in terms of column inches and not words right. you know, like i was i was used to i was everything everything in magazine world or book world is like you know you you, you think about it in terms of words well there's there's like a there's a 1200 word story it's like a short a short sort of magazine style story or there's you know a feature which is like you know three to seven thousand words or we're on on the high end ten thousand words and then there's a book you sign a book contract and you know it says you have to deliver a manuscript of 70 or eighty thousand words and so when i first went to the chronicle and everybody's talking about column inches i'm like what i'm like what the hell is what what do you what do you mean like what is an inch like how many words is that and so i had to i had to keep a just little about bit 30 my, right just about yeah 30. it's about 27 words 27. Yeah, an inch is about 27 <laughs> words so i had to keep i so i had to write that early like my first week it's like, okay like one inch equals 27 words and i could do the conversion and i could think before until i could think in terms of you know inches but yeah i mean it's it's just the people there are incredible there's there's a guy there named um kevin fagan who's who's like uh one of the most impressive uh reporters i've ever met and known and he's he's been there for a, a long time he's done extraordinary work on all kinds of fronts and um and he writes long stuff and and he does narrative stuff even really well but he also he also just does things he can write and report things so quickly you know, I, I, as coming from magazine and book world, I was not, I was never taught to write stuff on, on deadline necessarily. Like the last time I had done that was in, at the college newspaper, you know, where you'd, you'd get on the phone, you'd report something and you'd write a story and it would be online or in print in a couple of hours. So the, the idea, the idea of doing this, I, I did do it and I, I started to do it, but it, it was initially, it was totally terrifying to me. And I didn't understand how anybody else could do it. So I, I, I was talking to Kevin one, one day, just like walking to the elevator he said he had to write a 30 inch story in half an hour. I just said, how do you, what are you talking about, man? Like, how, like, how, how, how could you, how, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, I'll just write one inch a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you mean you'll write one inch a minute? Like what, who can do that? You know, he's like, oh, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just what we do. Um, so, so, so having some exposure to that, having, having, um, having to, having to do that has, has helped me kind of like work a, a different muscle and, and in some ways sort of become less precious, uh, about my own writing and in ways that are, that I think have been, you know, really, really useful and, and, and good for me. 
I mean, that was my life about 13 years ago, the inch a minute. And I don't think I could do that anymore. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I'm... So, 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 so like it, it's, it is kind of a muscle, right? Like you either use it or you lose it. Yeah. yeah it's atrophied I mean, on me. So it's gone. It, it's, <laughs> but I, I have no doubt, Matt, that if you were, if you were sort of put back into that environment and you had to write stuff on deadline, then you would, you know, it would be like, you'd, you'd be back in it, you know, maybe, but I don't think it'd be any good. So <laughs> I mean, it is really, it is really, these major metro newspapers are immense, you know, um, I mean, less immense than they used to be, certainly, but they are, they are um, like these wonderful machines. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some, there are are certain things that are, that are super important for, um, for the media to do that, that these newspapers just do better than anything out there. And they, and they do it consistently and they do it so well, like, you know, it's incredible every wildfire season to watch the machine spin up yeah. and, you know, begin to get news out to people about, you know, um, about, you know, what, what's burning and where and, and what, what is and why. Um, and it's not just the breaking aspect, the breaking news aspect of wildfires and all of the safety, um, um, safety concerns that, that people have when they're reading the paper, but it's, you know, the, the paper also has reporters who do the, the longer term stuff and, and, you know, ask why and do, you know, uh, investigative reports on, you know, institutions and companies that are failing people and making the wildfires worse. And there, there's a whole team of environmental reporters who talk about the drought and, and, and climate and how that feeds into the wildfires. And um, it's just a, it's a remarkable thing to really watch. I'm, I'm not involved in the wildfire reporting, so I can, I can, I can look at it from a distance and just kind of marvel at it um, as a spectator. But um, it really is, I don't know, to be on the inside of a, of a paper like that, that's really, you know, firing on a lot of cylinders has been, um, has been a very cool experience for me. You know, like I said at the very beginning of the episode, uh, it has been almost eight years since we talked last. Um, you were the ninth guest on this podcast. Wow. And now you're going wow. to be the 97th uh, guest. <laughs> this is episode 97, um, which still blows my mind <laughs> every once in a while. Um, your book, Ingenious, came out just a couple, like, just a couple months after we talked on the podcast. And then about yeah. four years ago, um, your book, the woman who smashed codes came out. And, yeah. um, I wish, I wish we could have done a show when that book came out, but your book came out about a month after my book came out. And so everything I was doing at the time was like nonstop. Talk, let's talk about my own book, promo, um, right? yeah. promo stuff. So I wasn't doing a lot of episodes back then. Um, but I love that book uh, a great deal. Um, and I was hoping at the very least we can talk briefly about, about the woman who smashed codes. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that, that book and, and, and what all is, is there anything happening with it even four years later? Yes. Uh, the woman who smashed codes, it's about a, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Friedman, who's, uh, one of the most impressive sort of brilliant, uh, code breakers who ever lived. Um, she was a code breaking Quaker poet who, invented, helped to invent a new science of codes and ciphers in America. Um, She used her puzzle solving abilities to um, uh, hunt gangsters during prohibition. Uh, She testified against some of Al Capone's men in open court. Um, They they wanted to kill her. She had uh, US Secret Service protection. She was like a secret weapon of, of the US government for years and years. 
she also used her uh, code-breaking abilities to um, help America um, during both world wars. And in World War II, um, she and the, the code-breaking unit that, that she built, that, that she ran, um, ended up uh, uh, pursuing a, a set of Nazi spies who were operating in South America um, uh, at the behest of the FBI, Jager Hoover's FBI, who had no ability to track these guys, had no code-breaking expertise. And so they relied on Elizabeth Friedman, relied on her and her team to um, intercept the secret uh, messages that these Nazi spies were sending, um, uh, break the codes, uh, figure out what they were saying to each other, and then use that information to, to go catch the bad guys and you know destroy the spy ring, which she, she successfully did. Um, you know, uh, as, as sort of like a, you know, a mother of two. And then after the war, uh, Jager Hoover took credit for all the work that she had done and essentially erased her uh, legacy and sort of uh, deleted her from, from history. And so this incredible story of this code-breaking Quaker poet who, you know, helped win um, uh, World War II um, was never known, was never told. And, um, and, uh, and I, I sort of, found a little breadcrumb and I, I, I followed the trail of breadcrumbs and I, I ended up finding this whole trove of uh, records and documents and uh, I used it to write, to write this book. That was, um, obviously that's a book that relied so much on archives and, yeah. and I didn't know, had you done much archival work in some of your freelance or other work before that? Or was this the first no. time you really like dove headfirst into archival material? No, this was my this was my first immersion in, in that world, and I I knew very little about it when I when I started out, and it was it was so enjoyable. I miss it, I miss it a lot actually because, um, I think when I started, I had this I had this mistaken kind of conception that that most of the world's information is on Google. <laughs> uh, I feel so stupid saying that now. Um, or if not on Google, it was at least text searchable on any number of sort of, you know, databases, right? Um, but the, the fact is that there's still an enormous amount of, there's, there's, there's you know, all kinds of treasures that are, that are um, only available in the special collections of libraries. And, you know, archivists know about them and librarians know about them. And these are, you know, wonderful people. These are heroes, but um, but it's not it's not necessarily text searchable. You actually have to go there um, and look at the look at the records, look at the letters, get your hands on them. And so that's that's what I did. And that's what I loved, because it really is like you feel like a detective. You know, you feel like Sherlock Holmes. You're you're chasing pieces of paper through multiple libraries and making connections. And, you know, there were a couple of moments when I was in a, when I was in a library um doing research and i found something i just wanted to scream i was so so happy i was so proud of myself and so delighted at what i was seeing and then i had to remember that i was in a library and people are there you know researching genealogical stuff and military stuff you can't scream but um but yeah that that part of it that part of it was my was my favorite it was it was uh just intensely uh enjoyable um and i don't know my my next book project i hope uh, I find something like that where I can get back into the archives because uh, it was just, uh, it was purely, purely pleasure. Not the writing part of it. Like the writing is, writing is difficult always and never seems to get easier. But the, the detective part of it, I, I, I just, I, I uh, uncomplicatedly loved. I was going to ask you, and it, it seems like you, you kind of answered that, but uh, are, are you going to do another book uh, at some point in time? 
I don't I don't know. Um uh possibly, probably. Um I don't have I don't have an idea right now that I'm pursuing and I don't have a contract, a book contract. So um, you know, right now I'm just focused on my job. I'm trying to be the best um narrative writer at the Chronicle that I can be. Um you know, I've written three books. I've I've enjoyed a lot of aspects of that process, and um, and I think that if I found another idea that I was as passionate about as I was about the Elizabeth Friedman story and the woman who smashed codes, then then yeah, I would want to write another book. the 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 thing is, it's books are so difficult, as you know, because because um, uh, you're an author. They're so it's so difficult to execute a book that you you need to be you need to be intensely passionate about the idea from from the beginning because your enthusiasm for it um, and your drive is going to have to power you through all of the really difficult times in in creating the book so 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 that you need that fuel to be burning like pretty intensely from the start that only comes when you find you know, when you find the right idea. And so I'm always hoping, I'm always looking, I'm, I'm, you know, I live in hope that I'll sort of stumble down the right rabbit hole and I'll find something, something that, something that burns, uh, you know, like, uh, like, uh, like the Elizabeth Friedman stuff did for me, but um, I haven't found that yet. Well, Jason, it has been so great talking with you again. Uh, thank you uh, so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, Matt, I I, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, and it's great to uh, hear you and see you again. And maybe maybe let's uh, not wait another eight years before we talk again. <laughs> that is an absolutely fantastic idea, uh, and, and not and another eighty eighty eight eighty seven episodes as well. So, I'll I'll see you on I'll see you on episode uh, five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. Okay, thank you. I've been talking with Jason Fagoni. Fagoni is a narrative writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. We talked about his latest piece, The Jessica Simulation, as well as his book, The Woman Who Smashed Codes. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Fagoni's work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.